quick overview of what I will be going through today. We're, we're doing a bird's eye view here of Machen. Uh, some of what was going on historically, both in the country, in the world, and also um, within the church. And it's a really far up bird's eye view. I'm not going to get into too much detail. You, you, you're going to hear a lot of this repeated once we get into the uh, Presbyterian controversy uh, starting in the fall with Daryl Hart. He gets into more detail and he breaks it, uh, breaks the history down piece by piece. Today I'm just going to go over the bird's eye view of Machen, some of his views, what uh, influenced him, and um, what led to the OPC, uh, why Machen was important. Now, this is not at all to exalt Machen. This is not ex at all to put him on a pedestal and worship him as an idol. Um, he was imperfect, just like all of us. He had his imperfections. We, we will discuss some of those briefly. Um, and, but this will help us to understand why the OPC is distinct. Not better. Don't hear me say better. When, I'm not saying the OPC is better than other denominations. But we are distinct, just like every uh, denomination has their distinctives. And Machen helps us to understand why uh, we are the way we are. So uh, let us begin. J. Gresham Machen was born, and it's Gresham. I know people struggle with the pronounce, pronunciation of his middle name. It is Gress, Gresham. The H is silent uh, for whatever reason. It's not Gresham. I was saying it my first year of seminary, and I got corrected. So, um, Jay, that is John Gresham Machen, was born on July 28, 1881, and he died on January 1, 1937. He was single all his life and no children. Uh, he was an accomplished biblical scholar and a privileged son of the South. He was of an elite background of the South, born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. He was known for various publications, one being The Origin of Paul's Religion, which was published in 1921, where he defended the supernatural origins of scripture. So he also published Christianity and Liberalism, which I didn't include in the handout, and he, that was published in 1923. Uh, and also, The Virgin Birth of Christ, which was believed to be his most important work, his magnum opus, in 1930, defending the supernatural and immaculate conception of Jesus Christ against the liberals who denied the miracles of the Bible for a more natural explanation. And this will help us to define what he means by liberal in, this, in, in Christianity and liberalism, because we may have a different idea of what that means. Uh, he was a respectable faculty member uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary from 1906 to 1929, where he uh, went off and started Westminster Theological Seminary. Now, unfortunately, Princeton Theological Seminary is predominantly liberal. Um, he would go on to help find the OPC in 1936. It was originally called the Presbyterian Church of America, not in America, that's the PCA. Uh, but after a lawsuit with the PCUSA, 
they changed it to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1939. And I believe we have followed in his legacy ever since, defending the supernatural origin and truths of scripture, and also the spirituality of the church, which I will get into more detail on what that means as we move forward. First, I would like to comment on the title. Let us not confuse the title of the book with a political book. He is not addressing political liberalism here, but biblical liberalism. These must be distinguished. Because today, you do have those who are socially, morally, politically conservative who are unbelievers and are liberal with their Bibles. Right? Many believe in the morals of the Bible that serve their worldly or political agendas, but that is as far as it goes. But they do not believe what the Bible says about, say, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, and the resurrection of Christ. So this is not political. Though he does um, address politics uh, throughout the introduction, specifically socialism. And, And the reason why he addresses socialism is not because it's a godless system. Uh, That's usually the the argument coming from most Christians who would oppose socialism. They oppose it because Karl Marx was an atheist. True, uh, but that's not the take that he took. He said the reason why socialism is bad is because it is a tyrannical system. So he was opposed to tyranny. Not so much if the political system is godless. Actually, most political systems we know today, if you were to analyze it the same way some Christians do to socialism and spread that across the board, most are godless. So there is no Christian, quote-unquote, political system out there that we can say they, are, uh, they start with the truth of Jesus Christ. Really, there isn't. Even a Jewish system based on the Old Testament right, would be considered godless because it is not honoring the true God in Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that more in his views of um, the Bible in, in the public sphere and all this, these kinds of things. So, um, so he believed in individual freedoms, especially the freedom to freely worship God. And on the flip side, he was firmly against the state legislating or enforcing religion or religious practices in the public sphere or on private persons. He held to a strict separation of church and state. Uh, He was a, and we're going to get into his political background here, he was a Dixiecrat. That means he was a Southern Democrat with Confederate ties in his family. And that is ironic, because he would go on to work for a Northern seminary, very Northern in its culture, Princeton uh, both Charles Hodge and Benjamin Warfield, the two, two of the biggest names in the seminary, supported the Union. Right? They were not in favor of the Confederates. And yet Machen found a home at Princeton among such giants. Actually, Warfield would be his mentor. And what's also ironic is that the OPC, the church which he finds, all nor- northern in its culture. The culture of the OPC has always been a northern church. 
In, in fact, um, one of the evidences of this, uh, since the OPC goes back to 1936, the OPC has never been segregated between black and white. We've had black ministers in the OPC from the early days. There was no, no record of segregation at all. And what's ironic is that Machen, especially in the 20s, was a segregationist. He, he would butt heads with Warfield on the issue of integration. He, uh, Warfield was the first uh, acting president of Princeton to integrate Princeton uh, Seminary. And Machen fought tooth and nail against it. And he would a a a actually fail in, his, um, in that argument. Um, and later you would find the OPC, like I said, never segregated. And, and never issued any command that it should be, right? So, so a lot of irony behind uh, Machen's story. Also, he was a small government libertarian. Now you're probably asking, well, what's a small government libertarian? Um, I, I emphasize small government because today, when it comes to politics, you really have two groups in the majority, right? You have these two parties, and there are two groups. There are those who believe in big government domestically, right, here in the U.S., and small government around the world, right? We don't need to interfere with other people's nations or countries. And then you have those who believe in small government here, but see the, the, the profit of having big government everywhere else, right? Make sure everybody's in line so we would keep our freedoms, right? So we have a big American footprint around the world. Machen said pox on both houses. He went to World War I, he came back, and he became an even more staunch libertarian. He said small government here, small government everywhere. And many Protestants at that time were not small government. If not, most Protestants did favor big government in some ways. Um, and this would cause him to clash with a childhood friend of his, even though he's 24 years older than Machen, Woodrow Wilson, who was uh, the 28th president of the United States. Uh, oftentimes, Machen would have Woodrow Wilson at his dinner table growing up. Um, but some things you might not know about Wilson was that he was, he was an elder in the Presbyterian Church, uh, and he was also president of Princeton University around the time that Machen first entered. But also, he was the architect of the League of Nations, which is kind of like the precursor of the United Nations. And what do you think Machen felt about the League of Nations? He opposed it. I'll, Right out, he opposed the League of Nations. He, he believed it was too much government around the world. It was um, another way for the American footprint to spread uh, around the world. And he opposed this. Um, and what was the reason behind the League of Nations in Wilson's mind? I, there are many biographers that have written on this. And um, I guess you can summarize some of his views was that he wanted to Christianize the world. That was the, the motive behind the League of Nations. Um, it was to spread culture, specifically an American culture, not the gospel. As a Presbyterian, 
how did Machen feel about non-ordained ministers to spread the gospel? Machen was very much a Presbyterian. And he didn't believe it was the government's role to spread the gospel. It was the role of the church, specifically through her ordained ministers. He wasn't a Congregationalist either. He didn't believe in every lay person as a minister. He believed ordained ministers were fulfilling the Great Commission. And this run ran contra Machen. But also, as a libertarian, Machen opposed it because he didn't like big government. And he believed, uh, well, he was a cultural liberal. So, libertarians are small government. They're conservative when it comes to uh, fiscal spending of the government. They believe in small government through and through. But they were also culturally liberal. Now, what does that mean? Meaning, think about what was happening at the time. Think of 20s, well, late teens, 20s, 30s. You had the Great Depression. But also you had a lot of immigrants coming in from specifically Southern European nations. And he believed that they had the right to retain their foreign identities. Machen himself and his family They spoke French at the dinner table. Were they French? No. No, they weren't French. But they came from an elite background and they believed that everyone ought to speak more than one language. At the time, um, I believe it was Kentucky. You can correct me if I'm wrong if you read the introduction. Uh, They stopped teaching a second language in in the public school system and he opposed it. He said, no, that, that would ruin our nation, that would come to our ruin, that we don't know other languages. And the immigrants coming over, don't force them to assimilate. He was against uh, immigrants being forced by the federal government to assimilate to a specific culture. Immigrants coming over, they had the right to retain their culture, to retain their language, and not be forced to accepting so-called American Protestant norms. Or Machen would eventually say, well, the Western civilization has not been Christian for a long time. And this is the 1920s. hundred years later, a lot of Christians are saying that now. But he was saying in the 1920s that Western civilization was not Christian. Now imagine that. And that's because he is thinking as a Presbyterian. And I believe his libertarian views had an impact. Now, what was ironic about uh, Woodrow Wilson seeking to Christianize the world, not only the world, also um, American society, was that he himself was a liberal with the Bible. He was a liberal. He didn't believe in the Bible's inerrancy. He sought other explanations for the supernatural actions of the Bible. Um, He preferred more natural explanations He was sympathetic to social Darwinism and evolution. Uh, This is part of the reason why he would go on to support the efforts of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, And he would become the father of modern-day progressivism in America. So all the progressive politics you see today, whether it's CRT, kind of the LGBTQ movement, they can trace their lineage 
back to Woodrow Wilson and some of his arguments. I told you there's plenty of irony here. Um, so why is this important? Why, why is what, what was going on in the world? Why is that important for Machen's story and what happened with Machen? Well, unfortunately, oftentimes what happens with the church is that whatever, whatever happens, whether it's culturally, politically, societally, the church tends to imitate. That, that's been the unfortunate uh, reoccurring events that have been happening since the church has been around. And so what was happening in the church? Well, the church here in the U.S. was seeking to unite all the different denominations into one big Christian denomination. You're talking Methodists, Anglicans, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, into one big denomination. And some of the evidence of this uh, began in 1903, when the PCUSA uh, began to change the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism's wording on the sovereignty of God in order to allow Arminians to find a place in the Presbyterian Church. So, to Machen, this is a liberal move. Um, to Machen, Arminianism is the first step to liberalism. But why were they seeking to unite? Why was the church across the nation seeking to unite into one big denomination? Why was it? Well, let's go back to what I said about Machen being a cultural liberal. Uh, they believed that Christians were losing their grip on society. They were panicking. They were saying, all these immigrants are coming in, and they're from Roman Catholic nations. So kind of like the redcoats are coming. The Roman Catholics are coming. This was the big Protestant scare in the 20s and 30s especially, because Roman Catholics were coming in droves. And they thought the Pope was going to run for president soon. Now, we may joke around about it, but it was, a, it was an actual fear in the 20s and 30s that Roman Catholics were going to take over. Um, I think Daryl Hart, I put a lot of Daryl Hart's work on the um, handout, uh, and that's because he has uh, a book out recently, I, I didn't put it on there, on the American Catholic, uh, talking about JFK. So it's an interesting work in how Christians were really paranoid uh, during that time. But unlike um, the rest of the Protestants, Machen wasn't as paranoid about it. Uh, another, a couple of ironies here. Today, most of the conservatives who are defending the U.S. Constitution are Roman Catholic. At that time, they, they didn't think Roman Catholics were going to agree with the Constitution. Okay. And the, the second ironic thing is that Machen would um, vote for the first Roman Catholic uh, pr presidential candidate. He lost, but he, he, he eventually voted for him. So the point of uniting the church into one big denomination was not doctrinal. It wasn't based on anything doct doctrinal. It wasn't John 17, right? Where Jesus prays that we would all be one. No, it wasn't that. That had nothing to do with it. 
It was panic. There was cultural, societal, and political motives behind it. Uh, Not doctrine. It wasn't anything solidly doctrine. It wasn't based on our confessions or creeds, um, but rather it was political and cultural. That is a warning for us today. I think, um, and I'll get into it a little bit more, but we, we would, I mean, as Christians today, we say, oh, that's far-fetched. We wouldn't do that today. Well, it's being done today. It's still being done today. Um, there are those who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, don't believe in the bodily resurrection, but they hold to Christian morals. They're being given voices in conservative seminaries and colleges around the country because they're placing more emphasis on the cultural war rather than on the salvation of souls. And so this gets repeated time and time again. And Machen was a warning of that. That is what was going on in the backdrop. And we'll, we'll get into more uh, about that once I get to definitions. Again, Machen opposed these efforts and this forms the background of the book. Why did he oppose the church uniting into one big denomination? Well, because first, it would be to ignore significant differences between denominations. The differences between Anglicans and Congregationalists and Presbyterians. There are significant differences there. And what else was on the rise was uh, dispensationalism. Right? We'll we'll get into what dispensationalism is here in a little bit. But dispensationalism was on the rise and, and it began to be the most popular way to view and read the Bible when it comes to redemptive history and the end days. The way dispensationalists read the Bible is completely different than how we would read the Bible. And, and we'll get into that more. So, so Machen said, no, th- this cannot happen. Also, the second reason was that liberals were some of the leading voices. Though they were in the minority, they were some of the leading voices in this cultural Christianity and in uniting the church into one big denomination. Okay. At this time, it was both conservative and liberal who fought for cultural Christianity. Not that cultural Christianity is bad. We want people to be moral in our society. But Machen warns, when we try to apply what, what's happening in society, the way we govern society, when we try to apply that back into the church, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You run into major doctrinal problems. So I will argue that he is not just political here. He is not just a libertarian. But I will argue he is thinking as a Presbyterian. So this uh, leads him also in, in these views. This leads him to oppose prayer and Bible reading in public schools. He opposed it. He was not the only one in the OPC. I'll get into that a little bit more. Um, Why, he would ask the question, why would we give the keys of the kingdom to the state when it belongs to the church? Remember, he was Presbyterian, so he thought uh, of clergy being responsible to teach the Bible. And if you're teaching the Bible in a public school setting, who ordained that teacher to do such a thing? Uh, Let me um, read from Daryl Hart's work. 
It's called Defending the Faith. I think you can find it pretty cheap on Amazon. It's a really good book. This gives a lot of what I'm, I'm speaking about here in more detail, dates, names, um, who was involved. Um, and it's called J. Gresson Machen and the Crisis of Conservative Protestantism in America. And I'll read from page 138. It's a few paragraphs here, if you can bear with me. Uh, it says this, while Machen fought legislation that increased the size and power of federal government, he was also critical of the cultural Protestantism that often informed such reforms. Machen took aim at the Protestant moralism that pervaded government-sponsored education. He teamed up with Roman Catholics to oppose introduction of character ed education into public school curricula and recommended that public schools stick to their proper function, the impartation of knowledge. You don't have to agree with him. But he said the public school system was not a place to shape someone's character. It was the impartation of knowledge only. We see the reverse of what he fought against happening today, right? But it, it still applies. The impartation of knowledge only. And, and just think about it. I think in the early days in the, uh, the public school system, remember the public school system is really new. It's, it's not something that was founded, you know, at the start of uh, the founding of America. No, it's something that came after uh, the Civil War. So coming to the 1900s, you can imagine Christians teaching the Bible in, in class and leading prayer. He, he would oppose this, and, and he would give reasons. He says this, the only permissible form of moral guidance was the daily example of the teacher in the normal workings of the classroom. A religious or philosophical grounding for morality, however, violated the public character of government schools. And this is why he had a strong conviction about private Christian schools. That if you see a problem with the public school, Christians are, are, are to set up their own schools. If you see a problem, do something about it. Don't just complain about it, right? Uh, do something about it. It says this, by similar logic... Machen objected to prayer and Bible reading in public schools. Such practices, in his view, not only violated the separation of church and state, but also obliterated real and significant differences between, get this, religions. Trying to find selected ethical teachings from the Bible upon which Protestants, Catholics, and Jews could agree was hopeless and resulted in making even the best of books to say the exact opposite of what it means. Dwell on that for a minute. The way that Jews, the way that Protestants, and the way that Catholics read the Bible, completely different from one to another. So how we teach the Bible is going to be different from one to another. I know some people say, well, at least they're reading the Bible. Machen would say, no, that, that's not enough. The ordinary means of grace was not just the reading of the Bible, but also the preaching and teaching of the Bible. Right? That's what our confessional standard says. And so someone who is not fit to teach, or someone who has a different view, imagine them teaching your child the Bible. You say, I, I don't want that. Um, this happened in uh, 1962 in Abington, Pennsylvania. Uh, the school... Um, 
the school system in Abington, uh, I, I believe the, the case went up to the Supreme Court and um, it was passed that they are to remove Bible, and prayer, uh, Bible reading and prayer from public schools. Uh, one of the supporters of, of this was Meredith Klein, who was an OPC minister. He sided with the atheists against his own Christian brothers to oppose Bible and prayer reading. One of the reasons was that there was a heavy Jewish population in Abington. Still is today. There's a big synagogue there at, at the board. I, I, my, both my kids, uh, my two older kids were born in Abington. And, um, and he said, I, I don't want a, a Jew to lead my child in prayer. You would be exposing your child to one or, two, one or two things. Either false teaching, if they're teaching from the Bible, or idolatry and praying to the wrong God. Not that they would, you know, your child would pray to the wrong God, but there's an idolater leading your child in prayer. So, it, it, he goes on. The admixture of public and religious interests was objectionable to Machen, not just because it threatened the free exercise of religion, but also because it corrupted belief itself. Thus, Machen extended his critique of the mainline uh, churches to include Protestant assumptions about the Christian character of American society, which often equated Protestantism with the ideals of liberty, equality, and civic virtue. He believed that historic Christianity was fundamentally narrow, exclusive, and partisan, and therefore cannot provide the basis for public life in a free society. Christianity is narrow, exclusive, partisan, not inclusive. Right? The way we govern society is not the same way we govern the church. There must be distinctions. To do so, he argued, was to mistake ethics for salvation. Using Christian morals to promote public duties gave the faulty impression that people could do good without grace. When any hope, and this is Machen's words, when any hope is held out to lost humanity from the so-called ethical portions of the Bible, apart from its redemptive core, then the Bible is represented as saying the direct opposite of what it really says. This was precisely the danger that Machen perceived in the mainstream church's support for social reform. We'll get into that too, specifically pro prohibition. Christians and churches could still endeavor to correct society, but would have to do so from a basis upon which believers and non-believers could agree. And that is, a, I believe, a controversial statement giving the mindset of most Protestants in America coming from that time until now that there is no agreement between believers and non-believers. Well, I find that to be false because there is a common realm that we share and we have to learn to live with it. Paul would speak to this, especially in 1 Corinthians, I believe 1 Corinthians 10 so, and in 1 Corinthians 8. So that we have a common realm that we do share and, and Machen saw that. And we need to learn to live together in some way, peaceably. Um, so, he, again, the question would be, why would you give the keys of the kingdom to the state? That belongs to the church. Why would you throw pearls, your pearls before a swine? 
This is his reasoning why he opposed Bible reading and prayer in public school. Also, he refused to testify in the Scopes trial, which allowed evolution to be taught in public schools because he said he was a New Testament scholar and not a scientist, and he wasn't an Old Testament scholar. And of course, he opposed the prohibition of alcohol. So when considering all of these topics, he would, he would disagree with many, if not most, conservative Protestants in America today on these societal issues. Because part of Machen's legacy was that he was not only fighting for the fundamental truths of the Bible, but for all the truths of the Bible and its proper interpretation and application. Uh, he was often labeled a fundamentalist, and he was in a sense that he was a leading voice in the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1920s and 30s, but I would argue he was a staunch Presbyterian. Uh, and this is where I will try to define some categories, and I am going to limit today's lecture. If all you are worrying, this is going to go on for hours. Uh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, this is going to be a cutoff, and I will continue next week. <clears throat> but I will try to um, put into three categories the people that were surrounding Machen and to see how much of a fight he had to put up in his day. He pretty much fought everybody when you consider these three categories that he opposed. Um, the first category is the fundamentalist. Uh, this is the conservative of the day. Um, they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, the historic and bodily resurrection of Christ, which we would all agree in the OPC. This, this is part of our, the, the fundamental truths of what our confessions and catechisms teach. But the difference was that most were dispensationalist. Most were dispensationalist. Most, most Christians in America today are still dispensationalist when they open up the Bible and read it. The way uh, dispensationalists read the Bible is completely different than the way that the Reformed read the Bible. And I will try to give you a quick summary of, of what that is. Uh, dispensationalists view the history of redemption in dispensations. Okay. While we view it through the lens of covenants. So for the dispensationalist, when Moses was given the law, that period of time was the dispensation of the law. And so believers in that specific dispensation was saved, were saved by works. Notice the difference. We don't believe that. Uh, in, when we view um, the two, there are the two major covenants, right? The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works was with Adam. The covenant of grace was with Christ for the sake of his people, right? We don't believe that Moses and Israel were saved by works. Um, I'm not going to get into types and shadows too much, but yes, for Israel to enter the promised land, they had to obey pretty perfectly. But you still had the sacrifices. 
You have the sacrifices. That's grace. Their, sac- their sins were atoned for through the sacrificial system. Okay? And this is something that dispensationalists often miss. So we don't believe that they were saved by works. We believe they were saved by grace, just like all the saints throughout uh, redemptive history. Okay? After the fall. Also, dispensationalists view uh, the second coming and uh, the coming of the kingdom in a different way than we do. They believe in what's called this, um, I don't know if it's called an invisible rapture or a rapture of the saints where Jesus will return for the more holy saints, the more holy Christians, those who are more mature. Uh, And then the rest of the kind of carnal, nominal Christians are left behind. Hence the, the Left Behind series. Right? If you ever heard of the Left Behind series, that, that's basically what that uh, series is about. And so these holier Christians, they get raptured, and then us, I'm including all of us, us, you know, less, less mature Christians, we would, we would get left behind to go through the tribulation. Okay. Um, and then Jesus will return again, and then there's a thousand-year reign where he will reign on earth the way it is right now. And that's important to know. And that's why the nation of Israel becomes important to dispensationalists. They view the nation of Israel as important right now. Right? So there's this thousand-year reign, and then comes the judgment, and then all of God's children, those who were a little more sanctified during the tribulation, will be uh, given entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, what is the... I can't say the problem. What are the problems with all of this? Well, sanctification is no longer by grace. Glorification is no longer by grace. Right? Uh, When the Lord returns, He sanctifies us completely. We don't have to sanctify ourselves. That's one problem. So it's... It leads to a, a, a um, um, salvation by works. And it kind of speaks of a second and third coming of Christ. Right? Second coming only to those who are more holy. And then uh, a third coming for everyone else. And this thousand year reign, believers and unbelievers will still be mingling. They'll still live, live together until the judgment. So it's, you know... It's kind of torturous, right? When you really think of it. Um, and then, of course, um, I'll just leave it at that. We, we, we can go on and on. But anyway, in our church and in most Reformed churches, we, well, in the OPC, I'm speaking for the OPC, we would view the second coming of, as one coming, that's it. The thousand-year reign is speaking figuratively of right now. And the tribulation is happening right now. So it's a both hand. There are churches around the world that are suffering immense persecution. And to lighten that, because we're doing okay over here, is a travesty. Right? There is a worldwide persecution that many Christians tend to ignore because we're living okay over here. Um, and so there is a tribulation that the saints are going through right now. And um, 
And also, we are, uh, Christ is reigning right now in his thousand-year reign that is uh, spoken of in Revelation 20. Um, Revelation 20 is speaking of Christ's rule through um, the church, through her ministers. Right now, um, am I speaking too low? No. Oh, okay. All right. I can yell more. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. Um, so, so Machen would go on to repudiate uh, dispensationalism, and this is what puts him in opposition with the fundamentalists. Okay, the second group, I'll sum- summarize a little quicker here. Uh, the modernists. The modernists. These are the liberals. Uh, the liberals who adjust Christian doctrine and interpretation to fit modern culture or for cultural and societal change. What was the big teaching? It was evolution, right, at the time. And uh, liberals were trying to change what the scripture says about, say, you know, the parting of the Red Sea or the creation of man to better fit evolution, to make room for liberals who held to evolution, right? And there were many other cultural changes going on at the time, but that that was like the major one, especially for fundamentalists. So those are the, these are the modernists. This, is, this becomes who the liberal is in, in Christianity and liberalism. The third group is, and this is, a, this is a broad definition, but this third group was the major problem for Machen. It wasn't the liberals. The liberals were still in the minority at Princeton. Right? They were in, they were in the minority. The liberals were not the big problem. The big problem were the moderates. These were the conservatives who held to the conservative reading of the Bible, but they wanted to allow the liberal to have a voice in the seminary and in the church at a teaching level, right? To, in order to teach. We're not, we're not talking about the lay or the students, but on a teaching level. They, they wanted the liberal... To have a voice. Why? What was the issue? Let's go back again. Think Princeton. Princeton is a major cultural institution. Princeton was Ivy League. And was one of the foremost voices in the Christian so-called culture of the day. And they were bound to lose it because of all these scientific discoveries. And industrialization of America. So the modernists said, you know, hey, we don't want to attack these liberals and say they're, they're teaching falsely. We, we wanna, we're going to lose, lose our voice if we, if, we, if we shut this down, if we shut down evolution, if we sh- shut down uh, what we believe the Bible says about various supernatural actions of God. So they, they decided to protect the liberal in order to retain influence in the culture. So it was really, again, going back to the issue. It was cultural, societal, maybe even political. Because guess what? Liberals, uh, moderates, and fundamentalists all fought against what? Alcohol, dancing, and theater. The three things, well, except for drinking. Oh, they were against smoking too. Um, the four things that Machen didn't see a problem with he would um, he said his favorite 
pastime was to bring cigars and oranges to his students at Westminster. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't drink, he was a uh, teetotaler, but, but he saw no problem with his friends having moderate drinks around him. And it was fine. He would oppose prohibition. And those Protestants who opposed pro- prohibition were in the very small minority, very small. Maybe it was just the OPC, I don't know. But um, so, so again, this mindset, this moderation for the sake of expansion, Christian expansion, was the problem. Let's be moderate so we can reach more people. Let's not stress the doctrines of the confessions and creeds because, you know, people, people will shy away, right? If you want a big church, become a liberal or a moderate. You'll, you'll influence a lot of people. Machen was like, no, we, we must stick to our creeds and confessional convictions. And um, this way of thinking, and this is going to be next week's rabbit trail, um, you can read on it. Uh, it's in the handouts that I gave you. But this way of thinking goes way back in uh, Christian history in America. Moderation for the sake of expansion. Moderation for the sake of so-called the Great Commission. But was it really? I would argue not really. It was more cultural, societal, political, as we see the fruits of two major movements, Um, that we will cover next week.